Welcome back to the Change Healthcare Podcast. On today's show, Rob Capabianco interviews Mark Berg, a partner in the Washington, D.C. office at McKinsey & Company. Mark has over 20 years of experience helping healthcare organizations and governments around the globe improve the value of care with the goal of achieving higher quality and lower costs. Recognized as an innovative leader in value-based contracting, outcomes measurement, and payment reform, Mark talks to Cappy today about healthcare systems and services, value-based care and reimbursement, episode analytics, and payment reform for payers and providers. And now, here's Cappy and Mark. Welcome back, everybody. This is Cappy with a good friend of mine, Mark Berg, who is a partner at McKinsey's Center for Healthcare Innovation. Thanks, Mark, for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came into the healthcare market. All right, happy to do that. Um, so my background uh, is I'm a MD, um, trained and actually raised also in uh, the Netherlands in Europe. Um, spent my first part of my career there after MD. Um, I went into academia, um, became a professor of health policy and management in the University of Rotterdam. Um, and um, really, from that moment on, my interest was already there in the key question, how do we improve the value that you know is delivered by our healthcare systems, right? So what's going wrong in how we measure outcomes, how we regulate healthcare or not regulate healthcare, how we um, pay for healthcare, um, how we deliver it, because um, on all those different levels, um, things are basically pointing the wrong way, leading to you know, behavior or outcomes for patients that aren't as good as uh, you might want and uh, to levels of cost that are, uh, uh, aren't as efficient as you might want. And so that sort of struck me from the get-go as something that was really interesting. Um, and um, first 10 years of my professional career, I looked at that from a more academic lens, um, looked at the role of IT, the role of standardization, um, and basically the big question I had at that time is why doesn't any of that work, right? Um, and what's what's happening in healthcare? Why is that so different from other sectors in the industry? Um, and then once I started to realize um, some insights into why that was, um, I got a little bit jittery just being on the academic side because uh, I felt like, look, if you get a good sense of that, you can actually turn around and go back to healthcare and um, really try to make a difference in terms of fixing some of those big problems. And healthcare is an incredibly complicated sector. It's probably, um, I've heard many people say that look at, you know, sectors in modern society and healthcare is probably one of the hardest ones to really fully understand and try to, and try to impact um, in, a, in, 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 a, in a meaningful way. Um, so that, that became something that really became a drive for me and a passion. Um, and then after that first part, first 10 years, I uh, moved into consulting um, to you know, give back uh, more some of those insights to the healthcare field. 
So I appreciate you sharing your past with us. Now that you've given us the prelude into McKinsey, can you tell us a little bit more about McKinsey? Because maybe some of the folks on the provider side may not be as familiar with those services, maybe even some on the payers for those audience members tuning in. So who do you work with? How do you help? So we actually work with um, most payers um, and um, uh, especially the larger providers. Um, payers can be both public or private. Um, we do work for the federal government, so we work for uh, several states. Um, and it's actually quite similar to what I just said, um, working with these different stakeholders and looking at what these different stakeholders can do um, that is both in their interest and helps the you know value of the care delivered um, a couple of steps in the right direction. And that's really where you know my group, our group, health care innovation, um, that's what binds us and that's what makes the passion uh, of everybody that works there is really about that. Um, and again, that can be whether it's payer, whether it's uh, it could also be employers. Um, and everybody is really focused on this key question of, Improving the value of care, uh, looking at incentives, looking at regulatory frameworks, looking at um, are you using the, you know, the newest type of technology that can really make a step forward? Um, are, is the way you're delivering and organizing your care um, uh, as efficient and as smooth and as patient-centered as it could be? Um, and what is really key there, of course, always is to look at ways in which, by example, for example, by um, adopting a new payment model or creating a payment model, um, you can really create the incentives for providers to create, you know, to start using these new technologies or to start delivering care in a completely new way. Um, and so that's that's really what we're always focused on. It can range from measuring outcomes and doing deep dives on, you know, what kind of data can be used for the state to measure quality outcomes to on the other side, um, you know, looking at regulatory frameworks and say, okay, what, what, what of these regulatory frameworks that are currently in, in, in play, um, CMS, for example, um, are actually stopping some of the developments in value-based payment um, that we would like to see? What, what needs to change? What can be made simpler? Um, so that, that's that's basically a broad range of what we do in uh, in the Center for Healthcare Innovation. We also look at care management. We look at you know how payers can develop um, the best networks, right, and how you actually do that in a smart way, so that you're not just looking at you know unit costs. Um, and that actually gets more and more relevant for providers as well. The moment you start to take on responsibility for total cost of care or for a number of episodes, it's really important to think about your you know, partners that you're um, co-delivering the care with as your network, right? And so who should be in, who should not be in? Um, and if you're creating a network, should you work with, for example, that hospital for everything, or should you work with that hospital just for these types of conditions, right? So um, we often give the example that um, a hospital 
might be really good in hip replacements, but it might not be that good in maternity care, right? So maybe if you're building a network, you want to use that hospital for some stuff and you might not want to use it for others. And that's, a, that's kind of a more innovative way of thinking about network building um, that, we, uh, that we love to do. And it's a really interesting encapsulation of everything that you do, but it also, Mark, in my mind, starts to diversify what value-based care and maybe the transactional component of value-based payment where you reward for that action, how diverse it actually can be in its strategy. Often people get fixated around, for lack of a better term, a single silver bullet to fix things. But as you've talked, there's lots of little things that you can do around network design, plan design, how you think about the relationships in your network, what are you going to be incenting people on or for the behavior change that you're looking for. And that's the great value of a consultancy like McKinsey, really thinking about the multifacets of that strategy and how wide it actually can be. And there's so many levers here that you can use for both cost improvement, probably more importantly, quality improvement, and driving to a better all-over product experience for the consumer and kind of helping you transform that. So it's about the collective actions that you take, not necessarily a single yeah. action. Yeah, and I would, I would completely agree. And I think that what we often find ourselves doing is that it actually also goes even broader, right? I mean, it, 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 it will go into um, how do you actually set up your own organization so that you're able to do this, right? Um, are there operations in your organization, whether you're a provider or a payer, that really need to be sort of changed um, for you to be able to handle, like, scaling up in value-based payment, for example, right? Um, are there... If you're looking at a growth strategy in terms of acquisitions of other providers or acquisitions of, you know, of, or, or joint ventures, right, from a perspective of moving to value-based payment, you're going to have to do an assessment of those other parties also in a different way. So it actually gets, you know, it, it, the moment you start to put value-based payment um, as a more central part of your core strategy, it touches basically everything. And, and that sometimes is scary, um, but it's also the necessary step um, that we're going to have to make um, for to, to, to really get further. And I would say for those organizations that are sort of look, listening, you know, um, I think I think by now the the jury you know is no longer still out. The jury has returned its verdict on on you know whether what what organizations are going to be successful going forward, um, and it might take maybe a little bit longer than we sometimes think. But if you're not able to be successful in value-based payment and fever service, right, then you're going to have a quite difficult couple of years coming ahead. Um, and so from our perspective, um, really making that shift is incredibly important um, for most providers going forward, but I, fr frankly also for most payers because much of the competitive landscape for payers is also changing and you see many of the large payers you know, holding on and starting to embrace value-based payment as one of the main differenti differentiators in the market. Let's dig in there. Can we get a little deeper into what are the driving interests of value-based payment? Because I think you just brought up a couple of interesting things. 
the change is here and it's here to stay. Consolidation isn't necessarily always a good or bad thing. Depends on where you sit in the market and how it drives your competitive landscape, both for the provider and the payer. And you've also talked about it's deeper than just bundles. It's it's actually much more perverse in that it once adopted as inherent in your strategy that it touches a number of both your operational, your relational components, how you build products. What's that driving underlying interest? I think we can all read the news and get the headlines, but can you pick on a couple meaty topics there in terms of what's that underlying drive and make that strategic connection yeah. to be? So I think what we're seeing is that for payers, what is really starting to change is that um, payers are starting to look at value-based payment as a core strategy for medical cost control. Right, um, and and I think it's not an exaggeration to say that in this case, and especially for and for many payers until recently, um, value-based payment was something that was important, and it was part of the strategy. But it was always like future-oriented, and it wasn't really something that you know the CFO would call the CEO on on a you know Saturday night, right? It wouldn't be where the crisis were. It wouldn't be what you know ultimately was the bottom line um, and the core part of the of the agenda. It would always be this something that is new, that is for the future, that the chief, you know, innovation officer handles. I'm just trying to make the point that what's really changing now is that value-based payment is becoming a core medical cost management strategy, and that makes a really big difference um, because that means that value-based payment is going to be um, one of the ways that pay, payers are going to make sure that their bottom line keeps improving. Um, and <clears throat> that is th- that is going to have some pretty significant um, uh, impacts and that will and payers are also still sort of struggling with all the impacts that that is going to have, right? Because this is a, a, a big change happening in the market. So so I would say for the payers, and we can dive more deeper into um, what that, you know, what that means and, and what the consequences of that are. Um, I think for providers, I would say the biggest, the single biggest momentum in the market at this moment that is driving a lot of the change is um, the recognition of the incredibly important role that primary care and physician-led practices can play. Um, And I think that we have seen over the last two or three years that In the beginning, it was all sort of tentative, and um, we saw some initial results. But you know, probably, probably from about one two years ago, um, we've seen a deluge of results from studies and evaluations that have basically constantly repeated the point that medical professionals, when they're leading a ACO or a bundle, they tend to create double the savings of um, a alternative payment mechanism or model that is being you know, contracted by a health system, right? Now, for the ACOs that a lot of people always talk about, uh, Medicare ACOs, it even goes to the point that for many years, the positive results that were there for CMS were completely due to the work of these 
primary care-led and professional-led groups. Um, health system-led ACOs um, have been, on the whole, pretty unsuccessful in moving the needle. So that insight is something that is rapidly gaining ground um, on all sides. So you see policymakers, CMS, and states getting the message. Just look at all the recent you know, payment models that are coming out from uh, Center of Medicaid uh, and Medicare Innovation. Um, you see payers getting the message, um, starting to call primary care practices for deals for, for you know, Medicare Advantage is rapidly moving. A lot of uh, care is moving to uh, risk-based arrangements where you know, professionals and professional-led organizations are the you know, contractor of choice. Um, we see it even now happening in, uh, uh, starting to happen in commercial. Um, you start to see it happen in Medicaid, um, still, you know, um, early days there, I have to admit, but you see it happening. And what's very telling is that you see activity on the investors' side, private equity, getting really interested in primary care. The number of deals that we're seeing happening is exploding. Um, and, of course, primary care groups and physician-led groups themselves are realizing that they're um, in a unique position in the healthcare system, which leads to all sorts of very interesting um, you know, reactions and behavior and um, group Groups group together in some cases, even um, groups of primary care docs and, and specialists um, undoing uh, relations that they had with health systems. And they're saying, you know what, we're actually in a much better position if we're our own boss and not if we're employed by the hospital. And so um, I could go on. There's lots of examples of that. Uh, that's the primary driving mechanism on the provider side. Now, if you combine that payer insight, the need to really start to leverage value-based payment in a big time um, because I need to reduce my medical cost, and then you see that payers and others have discovered how to do that, i.e. working with physician-led groups, um, primary care-led groups. Um, you just add these two together and you get a very interesting dynamic. Um, that's going to play out over the next couple of years. Agreed. I think also when you start to get down into really specific relationships that you're talking around, either PCP-based relationships or your specialist-driven relationships, is also a transformation in the technology about getting more discreet. Underneath that, our terminology has changed. We used to think about the RIO, the Regional Health Information Organization or Network or an IDN, and that was really of a facility or an organizational-led piece. And as we've traversed into things that I believe are more meaningful, to your point, it's gotten back to the people that are the most instrumental in care, either your PCP or the direct specialist doing very sophisticated pieces of care and less away from the organization structure, which to me, it corresponds with the fee-for-service system because you're thinking about the overall payment or big negotiation when you've actually got to the people doing the work that have the highest impact. It's, a, it's an interesting way to think about the duality of what's going on both in the payer and the provider space and this draw into these very specialized levels of relationship that are actually... Great. And there's also a sense, and I'm not sure... 
and, and I'm not sure whether you were referring to that, but there's a sense also in which I think people are starting to realize, and I think some of us had realized that for a long time, um, that you know, in healthcare, right, we're not going to get there by saying, you know, we all have to sit around the table and we have to coordinate more and we have to cooperate more with one another and it's not about competition and, you know, th th there's, there's still a lot of places where I find um, that you see that um, and I completely agree that in many cases, of course, you know, cooperation and coordination and you have to sit around the table, it's all really good, but um, if we don't accept that in order to really move the needle in getting a lot of uh, additional value out of the current system, right, that, 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 that cannot happen without some disruption and without some pain. Um, and I think that at this moment what we are seeing in terms of the success that some of those primary care groups and professional-led groups have um, is, of course, about where the pain is, right? And we have to be open and frank about that. I mean, the pain um, is largely in institutional care, um, where whether it's hospital or nursing home, where just by, you know, just by the numbers, but also by the way that our care has evolved, um, that's where the largest opportunities for savings are. Um, and that's where really innovative care delivery models um, also show and shift care away from brick and mortar to other types of care delivery and away from, you know, it's always the doctor that needs to do things to other types of professionals that can do an awful lot of enormous valuable um, uh, contributions to the care process. Um, and so that's going to hurt somewhere, right? So we have to accept that. Um, and I think on the other side, the great thing of healthcare is that there is so much work to do, and we have a population that's growing older, and we're getting better at more at treating more different kinds of care. That you know, we're 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 not in an environment where we have to worry that anybody's going to go you know, structurally out of business really fast in terms of like a whole institution, right? There's so much coming at us. Um, but if you're, if you're not in this game with a sense of I have to really think about what my future footprint is going to be and how, what, what my future, um, you know, positioning in the market is going to be, um, that's going to be a difficult situation for you to be in. Right, and it requires that strategic mindset of change. The hard part about what we're doing is changing the relationships in healthcare, which is a behavioral modification, which tends to be the harder change. This isn't simply about applying more edits and getting to denials or somehow pending behaviors. You're really trying to get at the root of those behaviors in a very specific way. And if you take that out even a little bit, it starts to really confront some of that old way of thinking that consolidation may preserve my ability to do what I'd always done. It's an interesting thought. As you say, when we start to change those behaviors, you might actually be preserving some of your own control as a physician or even uniquely differentiating yourself to your employer customers as a payer by coming up with different ways to behave. 
and in some ways preserving what you've liked the best from a provider side, the ability to provide the care in, in the way that they've been educated and feel deeply about versus kind of turning back into a big corporate engine and a payer being able to design products and features that really speak to the employer population since most of them buy most of their products today and getting back to a little bit of that innovation in health that payers actually are trying to strive for, sometimes hard to get to. I completely agree. And I think that that a lot of the... um, positive impacts also of uh, value-based payment have to do with, you know, the need to open some of that mindset, but also will help to do that, right? So it just may, you know, what you were saying, you were referring to consolidation, for example, right? And one of the big things that people worry about significantly these days is the the ongoing trend of um, merging health systems um, and uh, consolidation in that way, and then especially if it co-occurs with buying up physician practices and others, then, you know, in some regions there's hardly any choice anymore for a payer or or a consumer. Um, And so that's a big challenge for, in this case, payers uh, to deal with, right? How how can you solve um, the kind of crisis that we were talking about in the beginning in the situation like that? And I would actually say is one of our biggest issues because if you look at the over the last couple of years, our total cost of care in the U.S. and the percentage of GDP and so forth keeps growing, um, while actually the total utilization um, is actually sort of reducing. So um, what's driving you know, at a very high level, right, what's driving our uh, cost growth is more growth of price than growth of volume. Now, I'm referring to that because value-based payment and think about episodes of care um, is actually a very powerful way to counter that development. If you're a payer um, and um, you're, you're thinking about, you know, I'm confronted with an increasing you know, large conglomerate of providers coming together, um, you know, what, what can I do with that? Then, you know, it's not a silver bullet, but taking an episode of care lens and looking at the value of the care that's being provided um, by that provider compared to others, right, could be a very powerful way to start to have a discussion about, okay, you know, this is the value that you're delivering for me. Um, this is the value you're delivering for patients. Is this really what, you know, is this worth um, what I'm paying you, right? And you can, you can go further. Um, episodes of care are the perfect method, I would say, even if you're just, you know, still in a fever service environment, but to really say, look, um, we have looked at what for a patient out-of-pocket costs would be, um, if you take a total, if you take an episode of Carolyn's, you can start to start to say, look, if you have a if you have a hip problem, you go down the route of a hip replacement with this provider, um, then on the average, your out of pocket cost will be this, right? You can do that because with your episode logic, you can see what the you know overall patterns are of use once a patient starts to get a hip replacement in a certain place, and so. That just creates innovative, different ways of um, using your value-based payment instrumentarium to 
you know, push back against developments in terms of um, consolidation, for example, or to um, create a very different kind of negotiation dynamic with um, strong providers in your network. You just need to be able to have that sophistication, that ability to harness the power of the data that's already there at your fingertips with some modernization, I'll say. Some of the classic grouping strategies are not as detailed, but we won't get into that now, but does require some level of sophistication, which is readily available. Now that we've demonstrated deepness, the richness of this topic, there's quite a bit of the market out there that needs guidance. This research report that was recently done by McKinsey in uh, 2019, The Seven Characteristics of Successful Alternative Payment Models, is a very helpful dialogue deep in its research. It speaks to some of that there, and I wanted to bring that up specifically because if you haven't read it, it's worth going out and taking a look at Mark, if you'd let me, I'm going to speak to some of the headlines in the executive summary and maybe pick one or two to dive into. The executive summary talks about the importance of the strategy really considering density and scale. That's the first headline. Strategic leverage, and that's more about what's available, I believe, in the episode and its model and the constituents and thinking about when you're creating a relationship with folks in your market about what's available there. Skin in the game, a very important conversation. Focus on the forest rather than the trees. That's number four. Five is calibration of risk and rewards. Six is the right mix of incentives, motivation, and feasibility. And seven is accounting for the consumer behavior. I think well-written studies, you can actually get a sense of the story when you read through the headlines like that. Give me a quick 30 seconds on the executive yeah, summary. Yeah, so I think that the, what we try to do in the paper is to <clears throat> give, give an answer to the question um, – what makes a model successful, right? So it's not about what makes you as a provider successful in VBP or what are your capabilities that you need to be successful. It's really about there are so many models out there. Um, what makes some models really successful um, and what makes some models just frankly not drive any results? Um, and what we try to do is try to figure out what are the characteristics of models that make them successful. Um, and you mentioned a couple of them, uh, like, you know, there has to be some measure of risk, right, for the provider skin in the game. Um, but some of it is also slightly less um, immediately, you know, obvious, um, uh, like, for example, things that have to do with details in how a model is designed, right? So we have found that in many cases, providers um, aren't as you know, well prepared to understand the details of a value-based payment contract compared to payers. Um, and very often in the nitty gritty of you know, what the exact savings percentage is and how the benchmark is set and you know, how your shared losses and gains are calculated, um, we have actually found quite a lot of contracts where if you were a provider, um, there basically was no way you could win, right? Um, because it was just written in a relatively conservative way from the perspective of the payer, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, um, but if you're as a hospital and you can't, you know, push back and you don't really have that wherewithal to, to understand the details there, um, we've seen 
you know, a not insignificant number of providers having signed up to uh, contracts that they would basically always lose in. Um, vice versa, it also happens. We've seen several payers um, having put models out where actually at the end of the day, um, those were lost drivers just because of um, some mistakes that were made in designing the criteria of the model. Um, uh, and it's just, that's just an incredibly important component of it. So, so it's basically the paper looks at those seven characteristics, both useful if you are interested in like creating a new model or designing a model as a payer, for example, <clears throat> but also for a provider um, and payer to start to think about should this new model that is on the market or that I'm being offered, is this a model I should be uh, comfortable with yes, with yes or no, or are there just components of the model that will basically make it not work? And again, it's less about what to do, but more how to think and gives you a lot of market feedback, given that this has been highly experimented in a lot of different models out there, and there's a lot of good results out there. Want to give us thoughts about risk and their importance in programs? Because yeah. it's one of those always occurring discussions. Yeah. So I think our the point there, of course, is that it's all about the financial incentive, right? Behavioral change on an organizational level does not come easy. And if, in, if, if the contract does not create some significant um, up or downside, then the, the behavior is just not going to change. The, 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 the history of your fever service engine um, is so solid uh, and ingrained. Um, you're going to need to have something strong coming uh, for that to change. So that's why we're saying risk. Now, I would completely agree with you that that could and should in many cases be a gliding path. Um, so moving towards risk day one is not a good idea, um, but going too slow is also not a good idea. So you'd have to find a way in the middle. Um, and what we've also seen is that it's not necessarily black and white, right? We have seen several models in which, example, for example, um, you know, again, professional-led groups, which are, you know, smaller, easier to sort of reset the momentum than a large health system. Um, and then we have seen that you could also have a situation where a significant chance of an upside can already make a big difference, right? So in some cases, you could actually get already some pretty significant movement if the upside is high enough. Um, so I would say those are two, you know, qualifications of the you have to have risk that are important too. Any final words of wisdom that is either at the beginning of the journey or maybe maybe they're in the maturity yeah, I think, part? Yeah, I think what's journey. really important is when you're getting, whether you're at the beginning of the journey or whether you're already further along, um, I think it's really important that you take a journey like this seriously enough to make it part of um, the core strategy of what you're doing as an organization, right? If you have not yet worked very much in this field, 
um, that's perfectly fine. There's a lot of a lot of other other providers, payers, consultancies, etc., where you can get the lessons that you need. But um, don't take a strategy that you're just dipping a small toe in the water, or doing it a little bit, or doing and and without making any choices. I think that's been clearly a big waste of time for most providers and payers that have been trying to do that. I think at this moment, if you want to make a difference and if you want to you know, be ready for the future that's coming at us, um, dive into it with some significant ambition and make sure you get the help that you need wherever you get it from. For those that are going to look at the show notes, because we do publish those along with every session, we will be housing the URL and uh, giving information to those listeners that might need it uh, via the show notes to go and find Mark McKinsey and the paper that we discussed. Mark, I want to thank you for your time. Always appreciate the conversation. I learn something new every time I talk to you. So uh, I know it won't be long before we have our next conversation. Thank you. And I appreciate it.